As a wise Buddhist nun once said to me, there are only two certainties in life. The first is that you were born. The second is that you will die. That is the very nature of impermanence. In a world where we often avoid discussing death, we believe it's time to open up and embrace the inevitable. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Saltram, an Australian Buddhist nun who will help us delve into the Buddhist philosophy of accepting impermanence and letting go of attachment and how it can transform our relationship with death. Because while we've spent a whole season focused on aging well, we can't ignore the fact that a good ending in life is just as important as a good beginning and a good middle. So get ready to challenge your fears, expand your understanding, and ultimately learn to embrace impermanence with open arms. Hello and welcome to another season finale of Ironing Out the Wrinkles. I'm your host, Ros McMaster. And I'm your other host, Kate Shaw. Together, we're helping men and women embrace the second stage of life with less fear. Tolstom works as a counsellor at Karuna Hospice Service in Brisbane. She is also the host of Karuna's podcast, What About Death? In this episode, we discuss Buddha's spiritual care for the dying, practical skills in compassionate care, and support for the dying and their families, and the importance of preparing emotionally and spiritually for death. Also today, Saltram will share her extensive experience, knowledge, understanding and insights into the important field of palliative care, providing a Buddhist perspective and how her faith guides her work. So, let's roll up our sleeves and iron out the wrinkles in our understanding of dying well. Saltram, hello and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely. <laughs> yeah, we're, we really are very excited. This is the last episode in, in our series and it seems a perfect way to end um, an ageing podcast by talking about death. And I'm particularly excited about it because I did the death and dying um, course at Karuna, I think about 12 years ago. And okay. at the time I did it, um, because I wanted to know how to support my father after he'd been diagnosed with cancer. And I didn't know then when I was later myself, six years after that diagnosed with cancer, what I learned in that course had sent me on a journey that really helped me when when my hour of need came. So I, I'm just so excited about this podcast and you sharing the same things that I learnt um, 12 years ago. So let's start with um, why do you think people are afraid to talk about death and what difference would it make to how we live now if we embrace that inevitable fact? Well, I think, um, the, you know, one of the first things is that life and death are not opposites. You know, we're often conditioned to see one as something that we you know, cherish and um, constantly work towards and that death is something that we avoid and fight. But in fact, life and death walk hand in hand. You know, you can't actually have one without the other. Um, and so I think really from our perspective, at least in the West, I mean, there are other nations, of course, across the world that have a vastly different view to us in the West. But I think in the West, we really have been conditioned to see death as something that we must avoid. We must fight at all costs. We must do everything we can to not talk about, not think about. Um, and I think a lot of that comes I think there's a number of reasons. I think one is the changes in medicine. You know, I mean, uh, life and death have been very medicalized over the last hundred years. We've had, you know, we've got access to amazing medicine now. And so there's a presumption that we will live a long life as a result of that. Um, so I think medicine and hospitalization as well, going into hospital, if you've got a, you know, an ailment, um, there's just an immediate sort of presumption that you will get medical care, you'll be cured, and you will continue to live your life. And I think all of these things, you know, have a contribution to our fear of death. I think also, um, 
you know, we are a lot of our environment and societal norms also um, really encourage this idea of it's life at all costs. I mean, if you look at our advertising, you know, there's almost nothing in advertising that isn't completely directed towards death being bad and and life being, you know, the only thing. And that, you know, we all have to have a long life. We all have to feel young, be young. You know, we have to look young. I mean, it's mm. an absurdity, really, when you think about it. Um, so I think, you know, those are some of the reasons why. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, the big question, what, how different would life be now if we lived it um, embracing that inevitable? Well, I think um, the suffering comes to our mind and to our heart, frankly, when we see death as something bad, you know. Um, I mean, death is neither good nor bad. Death just is. The same way as life is actually neither good nor bad. It just is. And I think part of the difficulty is if we understood this inevitability of death, um, I think naturally and the impermanence of life, I think the uh, the um, the response will, would be a much more relaxed, accepting response because we wouldn't be so shocked. I mean, I mean, I like to use even the example of you know Queen Elizabeth when she died last year. I mean, how old was she? Ninety six mm. or something. And yet, the number of people that you heard in the vox pops that said, "Oh my God, we can't believe she's died." You know, it's like she was 96 years old. What do you yes, mean? Yes, believe. And it's just because we have this strong denial of death, even though intellectually I think we, you know, we do know that death is coming to us all, but we make a presumption that we're all going to be absolutely the oldest that we can possibly be. So I think by thinking much more about death, talking about death, um, then we are, we will have a far greater acceptance and through that a far greater peace of mind. Can I just add, though, I think what's a really important point is to make is that doesn't mean that we don't feel sad around mm -hmm. it. You know, I think oftentimes there's a, there's a, um, a misunderstanding that if you just accept death, then you become a bit non-emotional about it all. Um, whereas that's not the case, you know, accepting death, I think actually can expand your love, expand your ability to be compassionate, to be patient, to be gentle, um, rather than clinging so tightly, you know, mm. to life. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think if you accept um, the impermanence of life that it makes you live better in the present as well? Look, I think so because mm. you understand that, you know, death could come in the next moment. I mean, who's to say, you know, it could be when I drive home from work today that I have a car accident and die or I might have a, you know, a brain aneurysm walk, walking back to my desk after this interview, you know. It's yes. Like we I have no idea. Yeah. But I think this is part of the problem in that we don't ever, because we're so conditioned to be in denial and to be avoidant, you know, we don't see the logic behind life and death. You know, death comes um, at every single point along the continuum of time, from the very moment after conception until the very oldest of age. And in every single moment along that continuum, there is going to be death. You know, mm -hmm. it's not, we just can't avoid it. Um, but uh, so I absolutely think that by thinking about impermanence and that's not maudlin, you know, I think sometimes mm. as well that people sort of think, well, gee, that's, a, you know, a bit maudlin talking about the, f I mean, I actually just said to somebody today, we were talking about, I can't even remember the context, but I said, well, subject to me being alive, you know, and they just said, oh, don't say that. It's, just, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. 
Yeah. It's absolutely true because yes. I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or tonight true. or tomorrow or next week, you know. Yeah. Um, and like, then I laughed and they said, and you're even laughing about it. And it's like, <laughs> of course. You know, yeah, it's, it's funny, like, isn't it? People are not? uncomfortable with how you yeah. can laugh. But I, I remember listening to that um, beautiful interview that you did with Bindi Irwin and oh, she yeah, said, you know, great. it was so... It, it was as though her father knew that he wasn't going to live a long life and every day he came home and said, oh, today was an amazing day. If I died today, I'd die a happy man. Yes. She said every day he said that. It was just a beautiful interview. So I yes. recommend everybody to go yeah. on to the yeah, podcast it was a very and listen to it. One. Yeah, lovely. And I, sorry. And no, I, I, right. think, I think that's absolutely correct because... If we understand impermanence and we understand that today could be my last, we don't focus either so much on the past and the future. You know, we're much more inclined to just be in the present moment, to be, you know, I guess understanding of what it is that the present moment is bringing to me. Whereas if you think about a lot of our suffering, a lot of, a lot of our suffering comes out of the past or is focused on this imaginary future that is an it is our imagination. You know, our future is merely a story inside our mind. There is no reality to the to the future at all because we have no idea what's going to happen in the next moment. Um, yes. You know, the Irwin family had no idea that that mm. was going to be the last day that Steve spent, you know, uh, on this earth. Um, and so whatever we're thinking about to, tomorrow or even the next moment is merely a figment of our imagination. So I think by contemplating impermanence, by contemplating death, it just brings us into the present, which is the only place that we actually exist. Yes. So Sultan, what inspired you to work in hospice care for the dying and how does your Buddhist faith guide you in your work? Um, look, it was a bit by accident. I guess, that I started working in hospice care. Um, I'd come back from several years being in uh, India and Nepal, um, doing a lot of retreat and getting a lot of teachings over several years. And uh, I, came, I needed to come back to Australia. And um, the opportunity came up for me to work at Karuna because I'm a counsellor by profession, um, to be a counsellor here. And uh, Karuna is part of the organisation called FPMT, the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, which is where I was ordained in um, another centre called Chen Resig Institute up on the Sunshine Coast. So I'd had a relationship with Karuna over, you know, quite a number of years. I used to do workshops here and a variety of other things over the years. So when an opportunity came up and they asked me if I'd like to be a counsellor here, I grabbed it because it meant that I could um, use my Buddhist principles because we're a Buddhist-based palliative care service. Um, I could wear my robes, which is really nice because I don't actually own much in the way of other clothing. So, um, <laughs> so that was sort of really nice to know that I could actually come to a workplace that would accept me in my robes. Um, so it was just very fortuitous and from a Buddhist perspective, of course, um, not an accident. It was karma ripening, so it was meant to be. Um, and uh, my Buddhist philosophy or, is absolutely integral to every moment of my life, including how I work. I mean, okay. you know, Buddhism is fundamental to my entire existence. So it's a, it's a very important, important component. But I think the other thing that really needs to be made clear, though, is that the beauty of Buddhism and one of the reasons that I think I fell in love with Buddhism generally is that it's not a dogmatic philosophy. You know, some would even say it's not a religion. You know, it's a spiritual mm. path. You know, it's a, a way of being, a way of existing. Um, so for me, that's the beauty of Karuna and the beauty of being a Buddhist in that you know, where, you know, Buddhists don't uh, try and convert. It's not our thing. 
and uh, we're not, we don't proselytize, so we don't preach unless we're invited to talk about Buddhism. We don't talk about Buddhism. So, uh, and that fitted really well with me as well. So uh, even though I am a Buddhist nun, you know, I can work from a very secular sort of point of view. In fact, that's what I've done mostly in my working life since I've been a Buddhist is, yeah, work from a more secular point of view. Yes, I remember someone said once they were really disappointed when nuns stopped wearing their habits because there's something about seeing a nun or or seeing a, a Buddhist nun in, in the robes mm. that's very comforting to people, yeah. even if they have no faith. If you're feeling a bit down, that's yeah. really soothing to see a, a person of faith. It's true. I mean, it's really interesting. There's a couple of things um, that have happened to me one very shortly after I ordained, which in terms of a bit of a social experiment was really interesting because I can remember going to the supermarket for the first time after I became a nun to buy some, you know, grocery items. And I was amazed at how many people just said no after you, you know, it was like, whereas <laughs> normally in the supermarket, yeah. people are elbowing you out of the way to get to the product on the shelf. And people were so kind, you know, they didn't know me, but there was this shift. And then the other time where it really struck me about how the robes, you know, affect people is that um, I was on an international flight and there was an engine, one of the engines blew up. And so we had to um, come in for a landing. So we did all of the, you know, brace, brace, all of that sort of stuff. Oh. And I was amazed at the number of people on that flight that came up to me afterwards and just said, just knowing that you were on this flight helped us to say, oh, stay that's calm. Special. Isn't that you know? special? So yeah. the robes, I think, are really, you know, for certain people mm. are calming and just, yeah. and from my perspective, that's totally due to the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you know, who's just the most calming, beautiful human being in existence. And I'm sure that, you know, it's for a lot of it, everybody knows the Dalai Lama and so they recognise the robes. They probably don't even know it's Tibetan Buddhism, but, you know, they see His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the robes and that, you know, settles people's hearts and minds. So, yeah, those two were really quite profound um, experiences for me in terms of the power of the robes. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? So in in your experience of palliative care and working closely with people who are dying, mm. um, what what are you finding they're most afraid of? And and how do you help patients who are struggling with that fear and the anxiety around death? Mm. I mean, there's a couple of different things. So for some people it what it's what happens after death because we don't know um, and because we're all control freaks, uh, we want to be in control and because we don't know what's going to happen after death, you know, people start creating all sorts of stories and things and that makes them afraid. And then I think the other thing is that we often, when we, particularly if we get a terminal diagnosis, you know, we'll have a bit of an existential crisis about what's mm do we even exist now? You know, is this? Mm -hmm. um, so I think they're the two main things. The other thing is uh, the, the fear of leaving people behind. Uh, so many people are, again, so attached to this life that they are afraid of missing out on things, um, mm. missing out on having experiences or you know, going places, meeting people, having children, you know, all sorts can be almost anything. So I think that and, of course, also um, those who are left behind, you know, have a, often a great deal of fear of how they're going to live their life without the loved one um, being part of their existence, you know. So I think there's a number of fears that come up, uh, but I'd say they're probably the main the main ones yeah yeah so what do you think is the most important thing that you can offer to someone who is dying for me the most important thing is to help people to be calm to be peaceful with this inevitability to be okay with it to not see it as something bad you know something negative uh 
The other thing that I think is really, really important and is a big focus of my life as well as my work is to help people understand that at least from the Buddhist perspective, but I think many people accept this almost from a scientific sort of point of view, Mm. is that love is enduring. You know, we often think that because the body is coming to an end, the body and the brain, that that's the end of love. But, you know, love is an energy. You know, love doesn't cease to exist because no energy ceases to exist. You know, sound doesn't. Anything that is actually an energy continues into the universe. So I think a lot of people haven't really considered, I mean, I call love a superpower because I think people don't consider how powerful and enduring love can be, whether the body exists in the here and now or not. Um, And the love between people or the love, you know, between a person and the environment or the love between a person and their pets or whatever it happens to be, that doesn't come to an end. And I think, you know, of course, as Buddhists, we believe in reincarnation as well. And because of karmic, what we call karmic connections that people have, those karmic connections will also continue, you know, into future lives as they've probably existed in previous lives. So it's never an end. Whereas I think, again, our perceptions are often driven by our conditioning that death means an end. But, you know, I don't believe that's, and even if you're not a Buddhist, I don't believe that's the case, the case, because energy doesn't cease to exist, you know. Yeah, that's very true. So why, why do you think emotional well-being um, is important at the time of your passing? And, and how do we prepare now for what might come in 30 years' time or tomorrow? <laughs> Look, I think emotional well-being is really important because the other thing that I often observe, and in fact, this is my own experience when I've had family or friends or other loved ones who've died. You know, in Australia, we tend to have a history of encouraging stoicism. And the trouble with stoicism is that this is just my own view. Others may well disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine. But my observation as a past Stoic, I try not to be so much of a Stoic now, but as a past Stoic, is the trouble with Stoicism is that it's, I'll be fine, I don't need help, I don't need you, I can do this on my own. Mm. Um, I'm I'm very much a Stoic as well. (laughs) Whereas I think where emotional well-being can be of enormous value is actually understanding the power and strength in vulnerability. And when we are considering dying or death, it you know, often I think we find it difficult because we don't want to accept vulnerability and fragility. And yet resilience is born out of the acceptance of vulnerability. And there's a difference between resilience and stoicism. You know, whereas stoicism says, no, I can do this on my own. I'm independent. Don't need your help. Resilience says, you know what? I'm strong, but I'm vulnerable. And so Mm. some support and some help to being gentle, being kind to ourselves as well as to others, really, I think, can help us to have that emotional strength when we are diagnosed or somebody we love is diagnosed with a terminal illness or it's death through another means. You know, I worked for many years in suicide prevention, um, you know, and it's like the unexpected death is also profoundly difficult for people. But, you know, I think, again, because we don't ever ponder the idea of dying and death and we don't ponder impermanence and we certainly don't ponder the fact that vulnerability is a very important quality 
of cultivating resilience? Mm. I, I took emotional well-being at the time I had done the course at Karuna um, when the teacher said it's important to be emotionally, uh, what was it, uh, something about being your emotional well-being um, at the time of your passing. And I took that to mean living well now you know if there's someone you need to say sorry to if there's forgiveness needed about healing the past in some way so you know living with gratitude every day so that when you pass you're in a peaceful heart mm. you know? yes i mean that's absolutely true one of the key things from the buddhist perspective is the very moment of death like the very moment that uh you know you would be regarded as clinically dead that that's probably the fundamentally the most important point in somebody's life because that determines the next rebirth. Um, yes. So, so having a peaceful mind that is focused on compassion and kindness and love is absolutely integral to a future life. And for, for me, for example, um, I do this meditation every night, uh, I go to bed as if I'm going to fall off to sleep. Um, I go to bed and I do a meditation that's called Tonglen. And Tonglen uh, is uh, Tibetan for taking and giving. And what you do is that you take on the suffering. It's all a visualization. Of course, it's not real. But you visualize that you take on the suffering of, you know, whomever you want to have in that meditation. It might be one person. It might be all sentient beings that exist in all of the multiple universes, you know, so whatever you choose. So you imagine that you take on their suffering in the form of black smoke, a black smoke uh, eliminating what we call in Buddhism self-cherishing, but also eliminating their suffering. And then what you do is that you return um, to them all of your happiness all of your good fortune, all of your positive karma, all of your good qualities, you give back, you offer back. And the reason that I do that at night is because uh, if I die in my sleep, yeah. I've actually died focusing on others. I've died thinking about compassion, not thinking about me, you know, um, and it also means that if you do something like that, you go to sleep with a peaceful mind. If you go to sleep with a peaceful mind, you wake up with a peaceful mind. Um, and so, you know, having a mind of sort of compassion every time we even fall asleep, if you practice doing that, then at the time of death, it's going to be a breeze. Yeah. You know, to have that mind of real compassion and kindness and love because what we practice we get good at you know? yes so if we want to have a peaceful death a calm death you know we have to practice in life mm. yeah i actually had a great honor of working in palliative care but i didn't have that wonderful technique you just mentioned <laughs> um i did it for eight months and i remember one of the doctors said that there's a common question that a lot of the dying have that have they been loved enough mm. and have they loved enough yeah. But I took on the worries and the pain and I wasn't, I have to learn to do that. I had to stop after eight months. I got too heartbroken. But yes. Um, yes. that's a great meditation to know. And I just mentioned, you know, I think one of the things in palliative care as well is that people, um, you know, like I think there's sort of, again, a bit of a misunderstanding or that by working in these industries and suicide prevention was another one. I think there are many, you know, working in disability perhaps or child uh, abuse and, you know, these sorts of things. People see because they're difficult topics that we take on the pain and the suffering literally, mm. but we don't do it literally. You know, what we do is that we, you know, if we just, share the love. That's why I think love is such a superpower because love is not only just an amazing thing, but it's a resource, you know, mm. and if we just do whatever we do on a daily basis from a position of love and care, you know, burnout doesn't really happen. 
you know, we might get physically tired from things because we've got this, you know, hopeless body that ages, unfortunately, and gets sick. But from an emotional perspective, you know, if we're just focusing on giving love without an expectation of return, uh, then, you know, and love is enduring. Love is infinite. You know, you don't run out of it. You don't, we never run out of love. You know, love is always there and accessible and available. But I think we limit ourselves. You know, we create these limitations in our mind about how enduring our love is, but that's mm. self-inflicted. Yes, yes, I yes. know. The I, stories we me. tell yes. ourselves. <laughs> so yeah. can you please explain the importance of building and deepening our own spiritual practice and what it means for someone who has absolutely no spiritual belief? Yes. Look, I think this is a really interesting question because for me, um, you know, like I'm a Buddhist nun, but I don't really regard myself as a religious person. I'm not a religious person because I personally just, this is just me. I don't see Buddhism as a religion, but what I think um, is important to understand whether you do have a, excuse me, a religious base or a philosophical base that you come from, what everybody does have, in fact, every living being has, is spirit. And I think we can, and for me, spirit is love. You know, spirit is connection. You know, spirit is uh, the power to share, you know, the power to be grateful you know, the power to develop our ability to be compassionate and kind. For me, that's what spirit is. So I think everybody has that. We don't, we don't always recognize it, but only because nobody's told us, you know, it's, um, and I think, you know, for example, our in, our Indigenous people or Indigenous peoples all around the world, you know, have this extraordinary spirit connection to their part of the earth or the earth generally or you know the universe generally and so I think for me spirituality has been a little bit hijacked Mm. you know I think there's so I think there can be a bit of an aversion even to the word spirituality because you know, it's spirituality has become a bit of a money-making industry yes. in certain mm. places. Yes. Um, and, you know, religion, I think, hasn't been great either, you know. And I think no. the, the trouble with religion is that, um, and this is just my personal view, is that religion is often about the institution <clears throat> rather than the practice. Yes. But I think when we're focusing on the practice, then all you need is spirit. You know, religions give us a basis for practice, but I think, you know, a lot of religion has become much more about the institution of that religion rather than how we're practicing the teachings that were offered in that religion. Yeah. Um, So I think everybody can connect with this idea of spirit and people can define that for themselves, you know. For some people it might be religion, but for other people it might be surfing. You know, I mean, I think, or bushwalking, you know, or stargazing or any of these sorts of things, smelling flowers. Yeah. So what what about actually for the person who's in the process of dying and they have no faith? Because yes. I, I know, um, like my father is an atheist, my husband also when he died, he didn't have a faith either. And, and in both those cases, it was because they came from terribly abused, well, not terribly abused, one was abused, the other one had all sorts of trouble going on. So they came from the attitude of what loving God would allow that to happen to a child. Mm. So, um, and I know my husband, he had so much anxiety when he was dying. And I thought some of that might have to do with the fact that it was like, oh my God, what happens now after I die? So that faith, um, some sort of spiritual belief had an impact on, on his fear when he was dying. So how do you help someone who's dying if they have no faith? Look, I think, again, for me, um, I'm sorry to seem repetitive, but it just comes back to love. 
You know, it's mm-hmm. like that's all somebody really needs at the at the end of life is if that's what they're connecting with. And it might be that, you know, you know, people might be considering, you know, those who are suffering in different ways to to be able to connect with that love. Or it might be, yes, that they do connect with that love through letting go of historical trauma or, you know, something like that. But, but, you know, I, if you have a faith, great, you know, like I really encourage people, if you have a faith, so if you have a faith in God, for example, then have confidence in that, mm. you know, have confidence that God is going to protect you during this time and that there is purpose behind this, you know, it's, so I think, you know, it's about if you have a faith, it's like being confident in that faith. Now, end of life is not the time to question. You should have been questioning well before, you know, the end of life. The end of life is the time to truly surrender to whatever your faith is. And then if you don't have a faith, it's really coming back to love because that's what we, if we give ourselves permission it's what we're best at doing. We hear. Yes, I don't know if this fits in. I had a I had a whole pocket full of miraculous medals because one of my my dad was secretary of the Legion of Mary, mm-hmm. and even the atheists. Um, but I used to have one on my bracelet, and they'd talk about it. I worked for eight months, as I said, every day with them, and even the atheists asked me for a medal. Mm. Yeah. And have one around their neck or in their pocket or held it on their chest as they were dying. I thought that yeah. was really nice. Just yeah. to bring a sense yes. of peace at that mm. moment. But that that's also another reason to, you know, embrace impermanence because that, that would make you question now and, you know, am I living with enough love now? What is What, are, what do I truly believe now? So yeah. bringing it's you back to this true. moment so yeah. that you are ready. Yeah. <laughs> when and the unexpected is- happens. And it's so important to be prepared. You know, the greatest suffering that I've observed, um, again, I can only speak sort of from my own experience, but the greatest suffering that I've observed is those who just um, have not considered death, you know, haven't prepared just simply for the idea that me, my family, my friends, strangers, my enemies, that they can all die any moment now. Um, And, you know, I think if we even just consider that, then we are going to be so much more prepared for when it does come. We won't be so shocked. Again, this doesn't exclude feeling sad, you know, because I think that's a vastly different thing. You know, I think sadness, we can accept and still feel a level of sadness, but sadness and suffering are not mutually inclusive. You know, just because we feel sad doesn't mean we actually have to experience suffering in that sadness. It's just understanding that if we've had connection with something and that something has gone, then we're probably going to feel sad for a period of of time. But I think absolutely impermanence, you know, it's it's so um, a constant in every single aspect of life. There is nothing that is not impermanent, like not a single solitary. I mean, I'm looking at your plant behind you and one day that plant is going to die. Well, know? it's plastic, so it's already <laughs> dead. <laughs> Looks but good. Even that, see, but even that, even though that's plastic, it will deteriorate. Yes. You know, at some point yeah, everything's or another, temporary. Yeah. yeah, there is nothing that is not going to to have some sort of disintegration at at some point. Um, And, you know, I think if we can ponder just some of these simple things, it does give us a sense of peace of mind because we are a little more prepared Mm. for things too. So, Sultram, that concept that you're just talking about of impermanence, Mm. how can that be helpful in accepting and dealing with the process of dying? Mm. Um, Well, I mean, both in the actual process, so the process of you know, the illness, because understanding impermanence means we understand that there are going to be shifts and changes, say for an illness, from the moment of diagnosis right through until that moment of death, irrespective of how long that period of time might be. So, um, or 
even impermanence of somebody who may be diagnosed with an illness and gets well, and then something else happens. And, you know, it's like everything is impermanence, uh, is impermanent. And so by understanding that, we can, you know, really get a feel for the fact that no matter what it is that's happening to me today, be it what I might perceive as good or bad, it's going to come to an end. And so, you know, our life is going to come to an end. Whatever we're experiencing physically or emotionally is likely it will come to an end at some point or another. Um, and so I think impermanence can be profoundly helpful. Uh, I also had, you know, my own cancer diagnosis and went through treatment last year. And it was just a really interesting experience for me as a, you know, as a practicing Buddhist, not mm. a very good practicing Buddhist, but as a practicing Buddhist, nevertheless, <laughs> um, to watch, you know, how my mind was responding to it, you know, the stories that it was creating, the narratives around it, the, you know, the suffering that arose with chemo and, you know, all mm -hmm. of these sorts of things and recognizing, you know, the difference between physical pain or, you know, versus mental pain and suffering. Um, but it also created an enormous opportunity for me to to move out of the surface, the surface sort of stuff with it, you know. And, you know, I think when you start recognizing impermanence, it also opens the door for us to really recognize interdependence and interconnectedness. You know, when I was having my chemo, I can remember thinking on one occasion, who invented this? You know, which, <laughs> yeah. what clever person came up with this drug then and and then I thought about what motivated them or who motivated them to get involved in research around this and then who taught that person and who taught that person and you could see that there's almost nothing that we do that isn't that isn't absolutely either directly or indirectly connected with something else that can go back Years and years and years, eons probably. Mm. And it sort of creates that opportunity for you to expand your view rather than, you know, being in this tight little box. It's funny how bad things, I mean, we've both had cancer as well and quite a few times, Roz. But um, to me it was a blessing. It was a wake-up call to mm. me. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And, and I think the other thing um, as well is that, you know, when we have these ideas of like interconnectedness and interdependence, it also gives us a broader range of resources, you know, to tap into when the difficult times arise. And I think it also helps us to understand that ageing, uh, ageing, dying, death isn't our enemy. You know, it's just none of those things are our enemy. They may be difficult at times. Aging is, it's a pain, <laughs> you know, um, but it's not an enemy because it's natural. You know, it's what all living things do. And, and death is just a, you know, one part of that whole process of life, you know. Yeah, and it, it speaks to um, the whole issue of attachment there as well, doesn't it? Attachment to identity, attachment to youth. Yeah, yeah. And attachment that, that's is can, such a yeah. big problem. <laughs> it's such a. It truly is such a mm, big problem. Sure is. Uh, because it really is the, you know, it is the basis of so much of our suffering is our attachment, and that's you know what also happens around death and dying and grief, you know, grief, mm -hmm. grief comes out of attachment. You know, if we weren't attached to what it was that we lost, then we wouldn't be grieving again. It's also because we've loved. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that that's, you know, anything bad, um, but it's just a recognition again. Yeah. That what we're not attached to, we don't 
grieve over, you know? Yes, attachment um, to outcomes, attachment to possessions, attachment yeah. to living and yeah. running away from, you know, your fear of dying and what have you. Yeah. yeah. And that's why we, you know, we do all of these things to avoid death, you know, and to avoid we take all of the... Um, you know, vitamins and minerals and put all this stuff over our body and we all go to the gym and madly, you know, and, Guilty. and fillers, fillers yeah. and you know, all of these things that we do, all of that is about attachment. Yeah. So it's, it has no other purpose really other than attachment. I mean, it does mean that we want to live a healthy life and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's the attachment to it that's the problem because at some point you're not going to be able to do it anymore. Yeah. And then yes. that's when we start to get upset because, you know, it's not the thing itself that's the problem. It's our attachment to that thing that's the problem. It's really interesting. Yeah. Mm, yes. And and in a sense that, you know, like as an example, taking the vitamins, that's also living in the future a bit too, isn't it? Sure. I'm, fe I'm fearing that I might get sick in the future. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to take this Yeah, now. there's a book that my husband just yeah. bought on the weekend. It's got a long waiting list. It's all about living longer. <laughs> yes. The doctor's done seven years of research. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's reading every page. Yes. And a lot of anxiety comes out of that. You know, a lot yes. of anxiety um, that people experience is around ill health, the fear of becoming unwell. How am I the fear of pain, you know, let alone the fear of, you know, the fear of dying and death. But mm. You know, it's just, part, again, part of ageing. For some people, they may, you know, be more on the continuum of not so extreme. But, you know, for some of us, things like osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, you know, what to do? <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, it's just for some of us how it's going to be. And it's okay. It's a nuisance, but it's yes. okay. So do yeah. contemplating practices like meditation or mindfulness help as well in preparing for death? Absolutely. Well, you, you, you're, yeah. yeah. You already spoke a little bit about the preparation yeah, the through meditation. Yeah. Would, would you sit with someone on their bedside and, and pr pray with them, I Hold guess, hand, as a meditation? Guess. Sure, yeah. yeah. If, that, if they would find that helpful, absolutely. Um, mindfulness for sure. You know, I mean, mindfulness uh, is probably one of the most useful tools that anybody can ever learn to use because mindfulness isn't just about, uh, you know, mindfully eating or mindfully walking, you know. I mean, they're lovely, lovely things to do. And, you know, if we get the opportunity, we should do those. But where mindfulness is really powerful is that mindfulness helps us to see it's that's why it's called mindfulness is that it helps us to see how the mind is moving so where mindfulness is really beneficial is that we can see the stories we can see the stories that we create about loss we can see the stories that we create about dying about sickness about aging about death about religion about you know everything and it's only through mindfulness that we can notice those narratives and then which one of those narratives are helpful or which one which of those narratives are helpful and which of those narratives actually keep us stuck you know and keep us stuck in a, a, a suffering mind you know so mindfulness i think is probably the most powerful tool because it's only through mindfulness that we can see perceptions you know we can see how we perceive a situation you know or a person or an event or and that we can it's only through mindfulness that we can really recognize that we're all different so some you know, people like, might want their hand held and some people yes, won't people may not yeah mm. and how you know somebody might be joyful at the moment, actually literally be joyful at the moment of death, whereas other people will be, you know, profoundly sad or whatever. Mm. But you can only, you can, you'll only ever notice that if you're being mindful, because otherwise what we're doing is that we're just too busy being engaged with it without really looking at it. So mindfulness is very powerful. Meditation is a bit harder 
you know, mindfulness is something that absolutely everybody can do. Everybody can meditate as well. But, you know, I think a lot of people struggle much more with meditation because, Mm. again, they perceive meditation in a particular way, but there are many different types of meditations that you can utilise, yeah. Yeah. Just as um, a side note, I remember someone saying once that it was really bad for a person who was in the throes of dying for people to be crying in the room around them mm. because that was up- upsetting for mm. the, the soul or the, the body as it's leaving? Look, that's the Buddhist point of view, and that's because, um, you know, the person dying, if people are around them crying, they're going to be grasping at that person. They're going to be worrying about that person. They're going to be, so what that does Um, is that we would say that that creates instability in the mind um, so that the mind, you you can't have, you know, instability and peacefulness in the mind at the same time. Mm. You know, it's like, so if people are crying around you, then you're going to be wanting to cling to life, you know, Mm. rather than just, so that comes back to attachment again on both sides. So from the Buddhist Mm. perspective, you know, we would say that it's useful um, if you believe in future lives or if you believe in the importance of having you know, at, at having a peaceful heart and mind at that moment of death, uh, that not having people around you, at least not having people around you crying. But from a Buddhist point of view, not having people around you at all, um, to be alone at the time of death is the best way. But, you know, that's the Buddhist view. And there are many people out there that that, that would just not work for them. And that's fine, of course. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, yeah. It's, it, it's a funny coincidence that a lot of people do die when their loved ones leave the room. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can be there 24 7. I had to tell mum. Yeah. Yeah. My died. mother was hanging on. I just yeah. said, you've, you've been great. I'm taking dad home. Yeah. And please, part, feel free. It's been hanging on for three days and nights in a coma. Yeah. Sure enough, she slipped away in that time. Yeah. I yeah. think that that happens a lot, actually. Mm. That it's the other thing is um, that you just mentioned then, which I think is really important, is for the loved ones of somebody who is dying, particularly if that person is, you know, like seems to be hanging on, is to give them permission. Yeah. You know, mm. give the person permission to go to whatever place it is that they feel they're going to, you know, because I think sometimes as people are dying, because we are so anxiety, worry, control driven, that they do just try and cling on and cling on and cling on. Whereas really, you know, their heart and their consciousness is ready to go, um, but uh, for whatever reason. So I think loved ones giving their, you know, their their loved one permission to to die, I think is a really nice way. And to you know, to like be genuine about that. Yeah. It's like we'll be fine. Yeah, you know, I said we'll that. Fine. I said yeah. that. And yeah. you've lived a great life and been a great yeah. mother. Yeah. And it's not that you won't be sad, you know, it's not. No, but it was a gift to her, I think. She yeah. was exhausted. Yeah. 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 We'll be, we'll be think, okay. Yeah. And oftentimes it's through our own self interest that we're clinging. You know, we're grasping because I don't want them to go. I don't mm. I don't want them to leave me, you know, whereas, mm. and again, it's not that it's that's not understandable, but, you know, for the person that's dying, it just, you know, it might be for you to be compassionate and just give that, them that, you know. It's very really, hard though, isn't it? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yes, of course. But only because, you know, again, we don't ponder impermanence. You know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we have so, a saying in Buddhism that everything that meets must part. Everything, yes. everything that meets like that. must part. Mm. So, oh, if beautiful. we can ponder some of these things, you know, we can be a bit more relaxed about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Saltram, do you think you can share a particular experience or a, a moment that was particularly mindful to you in your work with the dying? Oh, let me think. I mean, there's so many, there's so many, you know, so many opportunities, but also so many of them are so different. Mm. Oh, it's like they're all quite unique in the energy. 
Yes. You know, not so much in the the process, you know, the process of death is a pretty, you know, practical sort of generally pragmatic sort of way of things going. But the energy of people is is unique. And mm. I think I've just been, I can't really sort of pick one particular thing, but I think what is amazing is the privilege and the profundity of death. And I think one of the things that I've really learnt um, about dying and being with people who are dying and the families of those who are dying, you know, death is equally as beautiful as birth. You know, death is an extremely profound experience. The fact that the body just ceases, you know, is really quite extraordinary. But I think, again, we're sort of conditioned to see birth, birth as good and death as bad. And that, you know, I often hear the language and I often feel a little bit sad when I hear this language of, you know, people want to die with dignity. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want people, I don't want to die where, you know, I might have bodily fluids, you know, doing their thing. And I, I often think to myself, and occasionally I might say this to people, depending on the circumstances, you know, birth is not pretty. <laughs> you know, birth is also, you know, quite a, it's, but it's very profound, but it's not a pretty experience on any level. Mm -hmm. but, it, but we seem to interpret birth as something amazing and remarkable and beautiful, despite the, you know, the unpleasantness that that is around it from a physical sort of perspective, at least. And yet we don't see that with death. Mm. You know, we see death as not beautiful, but it is equally so, you know. And often I think when people talk about this dignity, you know, it's like families and friends or carers, you know, they want to be able to help. And if we see that cleaning somebody, at, you know, around death is any different to cleaning a baby, then, you know, we've done something wrong in terms of how we create the narratives around these sorts of things because there's actually no difference. That's so helpful. Yeah. yeah, I did that with my brother. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he died and my sister and I were, I was shaved him and she massaged his feet and we bathed him. It was very cathartic. Yes. Yeah. And I was powerful. going to, I was yeah. going to learn how to do it so I could do it for my father. Um, he's still around. Mm. Um, but I met this woman who had been and studied other cultures and learned how to um, bathe someone who had passed. Mm. Uh, and she said it was such a wonderful way to say goodbye and, yes, you know, to sort of have, and, and part of the healing. Mm. And when I said to my father that I was going to learn how to do it so I could bathe him when he passed and he wasn't going to have a bar of it. So. <laughs> well, the nurse did the private Absolutely parts. Absolutely not. <laughs> the, the nurse looks after the private parts. Yeah, that's okay. But, you know, it was really nice to honour him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one would have been horrified probably too, but he was gone. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's yeah. interesting how culturally, you know, we create these mm. narratives about certain behaviours, whereas, again, in other cultures, you couldn't imagine not doing that. You know, you couldn't imagine getting a stranger to come in and do those sorts of, you know, tasks and activities, you know. It's yeah. just, and that's why I think, again, impermanence is so important because, you know, what we do culturally is a creation, you know, it's a construct. It's not, and that's why all cultures do things in such a different way. It's not mm. that any cultural behavior is right or wrong per se, but, you know, we often think that this is culturally what we do, but we never question it. We never say, but I wonder if that is actually the best thing for the person who's dying or whatever, you know, and I don't, I think sometimes we don't, you know, we just accept rather than go, you know what, I think that I would really much rather do whatever 
I can, you know, to support this person. Um, and then I think we're, you know, as humans, because we have this extraordinary capacity to care consciously and deliberately care and love and keep cultivating that and cultivating it, you know, we can keep growing our ability, whereas a lot of other creatures don't have that conscious ability to do it. It's an innate quality. But we have you know, this, this intellect and this ability to consciously be patient, to be kind, you know, to be gentle, to be compassionate. Um, and I think as humans, we often waste that. You know? Yeah, definitely. So um, you more or less talked about balancing your own emotions and feelings, didn't you, with working with the dying by doing that uh, meditation with the, the smoke and things like that. Is there anything else you can suggest? Look, I think really the main thing, one of the things that I really encourage people to do is to engage with nature. Um, you know, nature is a profoundly emotionally healing thing. So for some people, it might just be, you know, opening the curtains so they can actually look out at the night sky or the full moon or the blue sky or even the rain, you know. Um, but if there's capacity for people to connect, you know, to sit out on their balcony, to feel, to breathe the fresh air, to listen to the birds, to look at the flowers, you know, I think, I think nature is astoundingly powerful. Going to the ocean if you can, you know, just seeing that enormous expanse of sky and ocean because I think often again this is just my observation and and others may see it differently but I think one of the things that I've observed and probably even through my own experience in in different ways is that particularly around illness if somebody becomes quite ill their world contracts down to just the illness, and which is why a lot of people get frustrated, um, even angry, you know, anxious about things. And I think sometimes, for example, going to a mountaintop or going to the ocean just expands the view again, expands the mind, contracts it. Uh, oh, no, that's the wrong word. Contracts in whatever the word is uh, that brings it out, you know, and makes it bigger Expands. and more open and more mm -hmm. spacious again. Um, and I really encourage people to, again, be mindful, you know, about what their mind is doing. Is your mind contracting and becoming very limited because the mind is not limited? Or, it, or do you need to do a couple of things that um, that will help you to develop that spaciousness and, you know, yeah. So for me, they're really, and this is for anybody, you know, but certainly I think when people have a, you know, a diagnosis, because again, we, we have no control and we don't like it when we have no control. You know, we get very mm. flustered and very unhappy when we can't control our circumstances. So I think sometimes just opening up the mind helps us again to just let go of that attachment. It doesn't, the other thing I guess um, is even when we talk about that, you know, let going of, of the attachment doesn't mean you can't be proactive. You know, I think a lot of times people think everything is mutually exclusive. It's not, you know, you can still be proactive, but surrender, you know, so you can surrender to what you have no control over, what you can't influence. You can accept that, mm -hmm. but you can still be proactive around those things where you may have some influence or some capacity. But I think often it's either one or the other. And that's, you know, again, this is why we suffer and struggle because we always think these things are mutually exclusive, but they're just not. You know, we can do both. We can do, we can multi-skill. <laughs> mm, mm, definitely. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Saltram, how do you help families and loved ones, um, you know, over the grief of someone passing? Look, you know, it's really interesting. Um, the reality is that, you know, the majority of families are okay because even though around the time of death uh, people feel great sadness, but the majority of people, that is normal. So for most people, you know, we'll um, have a conversation or two with them 
uh, they'll have their support networks, whether it's friends or family, and the majority of people cope quite well, you know, mm. with the loss of somebody. Um, for those who don't, then it's really just a matter of helping them to understand that grief is normal, you know. Uh, it's also very individual, you know. So the people in the one family can all grieve differently, you know, they may. So it's helping people understand that grief is a very individual experience. One member of the family may be very emotional, um, demonstratively emotional, whereas the other, other member of the family may withdraw, you know. So it's really helping people to understand that, you know, we all grieve differently. There is no right or wrong way to grieve. But I guess for me, it you know, grief if it becomes dysfunctional, I'll use that word, it's a bit of a harsh word, but if you find after a, a reasonable period of time, you know, that you're not getting out of bed, that you're not showering, that you're not eating, that you're not cooking, that you're not, you know, engaging with your world, then it becomes a little bit problematic and it's, you know, probably there's some further support might be required. But I think for the majority of people, it's just knowing that, somebody's there whether it's me or somebody you know else here at karuna or their family or their friends keeping connection you know isolation is not helpful when you're grieving so it's trying to stay solitude can be solitude is not isolation mm. you know i mean solitude can actually be very useful for somebody who's who's grieving just to give them the space to reflect and to process. And so sometimes solitude can be very good, um, but solitude is different in intent to isolation. You know, yes. isolation is more about denial, withdrawal, you know, whereas solitude is a conscious choice. I need some time on my own to process and work through and, you know, to ponder this. Um, so I think it's it's often really good to just check if somebody seems to be spending a lot of time on their own, just check and see whether this is, you know, through their choice or, you know, whether they're doing it as a conscious way of processing their grief or whether they're just, you know, being avoidant and so on. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful, Sotram. Thank you. Well, we've we've come to the end of the talk and I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Oh, just no. just in <laughs> just in closing, um is there just one final word of advice um which will will start from uh, the beginning again, uh advice to anyone who has a fear of death. Look, I think for me uh pondering impermanence you know i think it's just really important to think about death avoiding thinking about death is actually what creates the anxiety you know it's like if you um generally one of the 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 most common therapeutic ways of dealing with anxiety is to deal with whatever the fear is directly you know, so if you're afraid of, of spiders, then you slowly, you know, expose yourself to spiders. And death is the same. You know, the more we think about death, the more we ponder the natural, like death is natural and normal. Uh, everything that lives will die. The more that we even just ponder that statement alone, everything that lives will die and we don't know when. Uh, you know, it's uh, as we, as you said in the very beginning, you know, death is certain, but the time of death is uncertain. If all you do is ponder that statement every day, death is certain, time of death is uncertain, then that necessarily must reduce that fear of death because it develops that sense of, oh, well, it could be today, you know, it could be the next moment. So, uh, and the other thing, my superpower is, you know, just share the love. You know, the more that you share the love, the more that death just is part of that, you know, it's that interconnectedness. Life and death are interconnected, they're not opposites. Mm -hmm.